Welcome to People's Town Hall's Virtual Town Hall audio series. Our virtual town halls with lawmakers and other community leaders now available in an easy audio-only format for your flexible listening needs. People's Town Hall is only possible because of support from Americans like you, who believe our democracy is stronger when elected leaders take the time to meet with and listen to the people they work for, their constituents. Find out more and lend your support to People's Town Hall at peoplestownhall.org. Thank you. Hi, everyone. This is Nathan with People's Town Hall. We are a nonpartisan nonprofit organization dedicated to the simple idea that our democracy is stronger and better when our elected officials take regular occasion to meet with and listen to the people they work for, their constituents. We are joining you for a virtual town hall in Yamhill County, Oregon, with Senator Ron Wyden and his constituents in Yamhill County. Senator Wyden is joining us from Newburgh in the county, and we have selected uh, a handful of folks from the county uh, based on the subjects uh, they are going to ask about. We don't ask people's party affiliation. We don't ask who you voted for. We don't even ask if you voted at all. If you're a constituent, uh, Senator Wyden represents you in our nation's capital. Senator Wyden, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Nathan, thank you. And uh, I so appreciate all the good folks of Yamhill County. And this is town hall meeting number 1010 that I've had during the time when I've been honored to represent Oregon in the United States Senate. And we do it because we just want to throw open the digital doors of government. And there is so much understandable distrust of government. It just seems to me these meetings where people can ask, as Nathan said, anything they want on any subject, it just helps to chip away a little bit at the mistrust. No subjects are off limits, and we really look for what I call the Oregon way, just good ideas. Last point I'll make is we had uh, some good fortune in terms of helping the county in the recent round of uh, the budget. Some investment successes like $500,000 here in Newburgh to complete the preparation of design plans to improve the city's water treatment facility. Uh, investment successes like uh, $2 million for the city of Willamina to remove outdated water infrastructure, build a new facility, and install lines from the water treatment plant to the Willamina School District. And I just came from being with Congresswoman Bonamici, and we talked about additional help for the Virginia Garcia Mental Health Center, $2 million to expand their services. So that's a little bit about some of the priorities. And I'll just close by way of saying that Nathan's group, People's Town Hall, is to me what democracy is all about. As he said, his doors are open to anybody, anybody who wants to have a chance to communicate with folks at home. And this is about accountability. We know that we're a long way from Washington, D.C. Sometimes people feel in Oregon that D.C. might as well just be Mars for all the connection it has to them. So what I'm trying to do is shorten the distance. Nathan, let's have some fun. Let's hear what folks in Yamhill have to say. Terrific. First up, we have Marion from Newburgh. Hi, Senator. Um, Thank you for everything you do, especially on behalf of forests and the environment. I appreciate it. And, um, you know, there's so many questions I have, but I'm going to focus on climate change, which I'm very concerned about. I'm sure you know, you know, the atmosphere has warmed up by at least one and a half degrees Fahrenheit for the over the past 100 years. And we've already had very serious disruptions. And, uh, you know, like anyone who pays attention, I've been seeing the rise and fall of the Build Back Better Act and Senator Manchin uh, knocking it down. And uh, so I'd like to know what is on the plate of the Senate 
to provide incentives and regulations to promote clean energy and energy conservation and help sequester carbon in the soil and protect forests to sequester carbon. Um, and then I want to know what you think people could do to help the Senate um, get this through. Well, Marion, um, I'm really appreciative of the fact that you've started us off with an issue that is so critical to Oregon's well-being. We've seen these droughts and wildfires, and I think Oregonians know that these wildfires are not your grandfather's fires. They're bigger, they're hotter, they're more powerful, they're leaping over you know, rivers, they've just been devastating, and we can have them all year round, not just during a couple of, uh, of summer months. And with respect to what's ahead, uh, I've told my colleagues that right at the heart of dealing with climate change is changing the incentives, particularly on taxes and prices. And that's what I've done as chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. And here specifically is how it works. There are 44 separate tax breaks on the books. And most of them are historical relics to yesteryear, many of them, you know, fossil fuel breaks. I took all 44 and threw them in the garbage can. <laughs> and then I said, for the future, we'll have three, one for clean energy, one for clean transportation, one for energy efficiency. And we'll be technologically neutral, which is something that Senator Manchin was interested in. And I told him, nobody knows 20 years from now what will be big producers of carbon emissions. So let's be technologically neutral. But then, Marion, what we're going to say is the more you reduce carbon emissions, the bigger your tax savings. And nobody's ever done that before. Those tax breaks just get handed out to the big guys. All the powerful interests just line up and they get their breaks. No more. And this is the linchpin of the Senate's clean energy effort. It gets over 50% of the way in meeting the president's 2050 target for reducing carbon emissions. Now, there's lots more to do. Um, I'm very much in support of the Civilian Conservation Corps, which would put young people to work in the woods, cleaning out those overstock stands and reducing fire risk. And uh, I just appreciate your starting the meeting this way. And political change rarely is top down. It's almost always grassroots up. So I tell people now's the time for calls and letters and all of the grassroots energy we can mobilize. Um, is, there, is there any way to read about what you just said? Um, yeah. With respect, yeah, with respect to my bill, it's all on my website. It's called the Clean Energy for America bill. And the group that talked about how it achieves more than 50% of the necessary carbon emissions to get started in 2050 is the rhodium group. So it's all on our website, Mary, at widen.senate.gov. Right, right. And, and, you know, I'm sure you're all very strategic when you propose these things. What does it look like in terms of getting yes votes? <laughs> well, Senator Manchin, of course, is the key player. I was at one time the chairman of that committee and so I know what it's like to try to build support. There's very significant support, obviously, for fossil fuel interests, you know, there. And so I wrote this after going to West Virginia, meet with his constituents. And I said, it seems to me that from a science standpoint, purely science, technological neutrality is the best way to go because we don't know what will be the big emission reducers in 20 years? He said, okay. And then I said, I've got to be able to say that with respect to tax dollars, the more you reduce carbon emissions, the bigger your tax savings. And he said, okay. So my guess is that 
given his recent comments, because he's consistently said I'm for the tax credits. He's told people that, that now with the war in Russia and Ukraine, some people say, oh, we've got to even do even more on fossils. To me, the message, Marion, of the war in Ukraine is we can't get off our dependency on fossil fuels fast enough. If you want to make Putin poorer, and I do, show that you're for clean energy, renewables, don't give them a chance to bully people around the world, just saying, I'll cut off your gas, your oil, all your natural resources. I I second what you said. Thank you. Thank Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Mary. Uh, Next up, we have Bob from McMinnville. Yeah, I got on. Bob, we had your audio for a second. Yeah, yeah. Yep, we got you. Okay, yeah. Well, first, let me say I'm a Republican. And the only reason why I'm on this conference is to... It's my issue with you as a, as my, I hate to say representative, is uh, regarding Medicare and how your group down there in D.C. treats senior citizens. Number one, uh, inflation is at 7.9%. And what do you guys do? You give us a COLA of 5.9. So that's hit number one. Hit number two, Part B, insurance monthly insurance payments, you increase from $148 to $172. That's hit number two. So I didn't get an increase in benefits. I actually took a decrease in benefits. What are you going to do to correct that or or change it that it's more equitable? Bob, very good points. And... I don't know how much you know about my background, but I ran the legal aid program for senior citizens, and I was director of the Great Panthers for about seven years. So this is my background. And let me speak very specifically to your good questions. Number one, with respect to the COLA, the cost of living, I strongly favor changing the way it is calculated. It is correct to say that that is a fair measure for people who might be 35. But for older people who spend disproportionately for matters like food and fuel, it's not keeping up. So I'm hopeful that we'll be able to, out of this period, uh, get a new measure for calculating the COLA. Today's COLA is a good measure for people who are young and their purchases apropos of 35, it doesn't reflect what seniors need, point number one. Point number two, with respect to the Part B premium, which you also state correctly, going from 148 to uh, 100, I think 72, 73, something like that. And here's what happened. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, not the Congress, basically gave the green light to this big drug company that said they had a cure for Alzheimer's. I and others say the evidence is pretty skimpy here that this is really going to help. They said, well, we're just going to decide that they're really going to make a big difference and we will raise the cost up to $172. I have been saying that is a really bad policy because it basically creates an invitation for any drug company to show up and say, I got a cure. And well, instead of 170, it'll be 220. Instead of 220, next time it'll be 270. So what I did when the Food and Drug Administration new person came in, it's brand new, like last couple of months, Robert Califf. I got him to state in writing that he would require more evidence that a drug actually works. And when we have that evidence, we can keep those CMS people from just jacking up prices where there's no evidence. 
two good points. Those are my views. Would you like to follow up? All right. Sorry, I had to put my back, uh, my mic back on. Well, part of that Medicare issue that I have is I'm looking at a a statement that I just received from Cigna, and there's a procedure that my wife had to go through that was billed for $2,800. Do you know? Do you know how much Medicare paid for? Seventy-five. dollars. $2,800 and Medicare paid 75 or authorized 75 I mean, I mean, how ridiculous can you get? Part of Part B, you, you, um, the government picks up 80%. I have to pick up the remaining 20%, which means that I have to go to a third party and put out more money. It's just a constant thing of, of more, more expenses, more... Uh, uh, expenses that I can't afford. So my question or, or my anger is, what are you going to do something about it? And I'm sure there's a hundred million uh, ancient uh, or not ancient, but senior citizens that need help. When are you going to give us some help, some actual help, not a bunch of bull crap help? Well, Bob, as I say, uh, I'm delivering real help on dealing with this issue where people can just jack up your Part B premiums. And I wanted to walk you through it very specifically and advocating different changes that help you with your COLA. So apropos of real help, if you would like to give me your phone number, just give it to Nathan and your email, we will give you a call right away. And then we'll walk these charges, which sounds so excessive through the system and let me just ask you a couple of questions, because as I say, this is my background. This is what I basically why I went into public service. What kind of Medicare do you have? Do you have Medicare Advantage? Do you have a Medicare supplement? Tell me a little bit more so I can kind of prep the staff to get to work on this. Well, first, let me say that I've sent you a ton of emails on other subjects that uh, are bugging me. And I have, and all I get is a canned response that thank you for your, your email. Uh, we can't read everything, but we, we will read your message. But nothing direct from you. That's, that, that's part of the problem is that the lack of communications between DC and here. And, that, and the second thing, well, uh, I don't have any supplemental income. When I did the research, they were going to ding me because of my age and uh, health issues. They were going to, uh, the third party provider was going to uh, hit me with a $280 monthly fee. So I, so I wavered that. I couldn't afford it. My wife has supplemental income. Uh, she's battling cancer. And, and she pays, uh, we have to pay $140 on third-party provider. And <clears throat> so here we're again, it's just a constant battle uh, of additional expenses that somebody on a retired fixed income cannot afford. Uh, my staff will call you in the next day or so if you just give us a number. They're sitting right here. This is what made me go into public service. Those seven years working on exactly these kinds of cases. It certainly sounds to me from your call like you've been bounced around unfairly. And if you'll just give Nathan a phone number and an email, we'll respond to you this week. Okay? Well, I'll send you an email. I don't want to put this out where I'll be getting a lot of bogus phone calls. So No, 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 you will you wouldn't be an email with that information. I'll just pass that along just right. directly to his team, Bob. Yeah. I won't share your phone number with but, any, Bob, anybody. Bob, nothing is going to anybody. I would very much like, since it sounds to me like these bureaucracies have not treated you fairly, to make sure that my staff folks get on the phone with you personally. And as I say, listening to you, 
I've dealt with an enormous number of cases like this because this is my background. So I'd like to try and help. And um, if you give Nathan the information so we can contact you, that will be completely private and we'll do it right away. Thank you. Great. Thanks for joining us, Bob. And I will make sure you get in touch. Uh, next up, we have Walt from Yamhill. Thank you very much. Uh, my, my other questions uh, that I had submitted relate to Ukraine and voting rights. I hope somebody takes those up. Uh, my question will be or, and comments related to the Supreme Court. What steps need to be taken for the Supreme Court to prioritize the rule of law and the values of over 70% of our nation related to the right of a woman and her family to determine when and whether to expand their family? the right to choose who one wants to love and live with for the rest of their life, and the right and ability for all citizens to vote for who they want to represent them, and a conflict of interest where member Clarence Thomas is voting on issues that directly involved his wife's potentially criminal campaign to overthrow the government of the United States. Yes or no? Um, I want to I want to make sure Walt, then I respond to each question, and I think I'll go walk them backward. First, with respect to uh, Justice Thomas, I was the first member of the Senate to say, and I don't think it's a close call, that he should recuse himself on any matters relating to January 6th, and, and Donald Trump will see what he does. Um, with respect to the right to vote, I'm the nation's first senator elected completely by mail. And I have proposed taking the Oregon way national. Now, I'm a Democrat. People don't always remember that the second senator elected completely by mail was Gordon Smith, who's a Republican. And the late Dennis Richardson of Southern Oregon, who always told me he was very conservative, he was our Secretary of State, and he told Donald Trump that he was off base in saying that there was all kinds of fraud in vote by mail. So I'm doing everything I can, Walt, to get Republicans to pick up on what the late Dennis Richardson said and Gordon Smith and others over the years that there has not been fraud. In fact, vote by mail Vote by mail is the best way to cast an informed vote because the ballot comes to your house. You get a chance to think about it, read about it, and then cast your, your judgment. And I just gave you the examples in our little state about how this has not been a partisan matter. The last point you mentioned was about a woman's right to choose. And I'll tell you what I said on the floor of the Senate in connection with the uh, Jackson nomination. I'm concerned not just about the right of a woman to make their own private choices relating to their reproductive health. I'm concerned that there's an effort now to actually overturn the ability to secure contraception. And I've heard a number of elected officials talk about how there shouldn't be this right. And I finally on the floor said, what year is this? Because this is like turning back the clock decades. And then I finally said, what century is this? Because it really goes back to 1870. So apropos of these issues, as I touched on earlier with Marion, to a great extent, Political change doesn't start in D.C. and trickle down. It's got to be bottoms up. And I sure hope we'll hear people speak out on each one of those issues. Conflict of interest issue, I'm just going back with what you said, um, the question of voting rights and the question of women's reproductive health. And also same-sex marriage. And, oh, you know, but but well, basically, how, how do from the, the realities of the way things are now, is there anything that can be done to prevent the direction that the Supreme Court is moving? Do we expand the Supreme Court? What do we need to do? Well, first of all, 
With respect to marriage equality that you're talking about, I was the first United States Senator to come out for marriage equality. And what I said was, if you don't like gay marriage, don't get one. And that was my position then. I think this is a private um, choice. And, you know, look, political judgments in America will ripple through the court system. There's just no question about it because it affects dramatically um, who goes to the uh, bench. And I think that's why it's so important that people vote. They have a right to make their own choices. These are official state meetings. I think I'm going to leave it at that. Thanks for joining us today, Walt. Uh, next up, we have Glenna. <clears throat> well, um, Marion sort of took part of my question, although I have a different uh, a different slant. It's climate change to me is the one thing we have to get right, and we need to get it right soon, or it will be too late. And I don't think we have until 2050 to just reduce carbon dioxide we by by then nothing else will matter and it will be too late um so i'm asked my main question is how do we push some of the crises that seem more important in the immediate time how do we push those aside and deal with the one that might seem farther off but is actually existential. Well, Lena, I can tell you, I meet with a lot of young people. And my wife and I are older parents. And I can tell you, they do not think that this is some kind of far removed, distant kind of thing. And that's why I've spent so much time in taking on the most powerful economic interests in the country, all of those people who benefit from the tax system, the way it's written, looked at what I was doing. I took, ma'am, I took the tax code. That's all about giving the breaks to the powerful. who have had them for years. I threw it in the trash can and I lit the whole thing to make sure that people got the message. And then I said, we're going to do it completely differently. We're going to make it all about carbon emissions. So you bet this is urgent business. That's why I talked about the Civilian Conservation Corps. There are other kinds of approaches that I think you know, make, make sense. And what I wanna do is I wanna get this passed in this Congress. This is the linchpin of making a serious, I guess your point is very good because it's not enough. I'd be the first to say that it's not enough, but it's a significant down payment. And people pay attention, most of all, to matters relating to taxes and prices. And this has taken on one of those two big ones in a very dramatic way. I'll tell you, I've had people who studied the legislative process and they can't believe I got this out of the Senate Finance Committee. I'm the chairman. They said, we can't believe it. You got the votes of senators from states with very significant fossil presence and you got them, you persuaded them to go with this new approach. And I think it's the right thing to do. And essentially, the major environmental groups, the major utilities who recognize we can't do business as usual have all said this is the way to go. So that, that's how I'd frame it. It's a beginning. I wish you the best. Thank you. You keep speaking out and keep stressing the urgency. If you and Marion keep talking about how urgent this is, that'll strengthen our hands so we can do more. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for your question, Glenna. Next up, we have Dave from McMinnville. Senator Dave Hogberg, as you know, I chair the Emil County Parkway Committee, and, and I'm not here just to ask a question personally. This is, this is one that emanates from the Parkway Committee and the cities and the counties and, and a whole region that we represent in, in moving forward to completion of the Newburgh Dundee Bypass. I want to go back, Senator, you mentioned about your town halls many, many years ago when we were just starting on the bypass. You came to McMinnville and you were to speak at and to have a town hall at the McMinnville Library. And I was fortunate enough to be asked to introduce you. And I recall, Senator, 
you're pointing out, you had visited and would visit all 36 counties in Oregon that year and every year. And so we talked about the park, the, the bypass, and, and maybe everybody else doesn't know, but you were the one that was directly responsible for getting the first major funding, the first federal funding that got it all started, Senator. It was that federal dollars that started the study, the environmental work, and that brought us to go forward. As a result, you know, we built the first phase of the bypass. The next phase is going to start in construction on an interchange at 219. We've done engineering work, buying right away to get from 219 back up around to 99W around Rex Hill. But, Senator, the next piece is Dayton to Dundee, and that's a critical part of it. Uh, we all remember the light in Dundee, but we've moved that light now to Sokoblosser Lane on and near McDougal Corner. And so we just want to thank you for where we are. But, Senator, we need your help again. And let me tell you what it is. Well, I know that. And let me tell you. Here's what it is. Uh, we, as a part of the Parkway Committee, asked for a special appropriation in your from you and Senator Merkley for $10 million. And what it is, is to fix the intersection at McDougal Corner. It, it may be the only one, Senator, in the state where you have two major highways, 18 and 99W, coming together at an uncontrolled intersection. It's at the highest level of, of crash sites, uh, as according to ODOT. But not only that, it is the key beginning to build phase three. That's what connects phase three from Dayton to Dundee and makes that next part. And so so the 10 million is about safety, but it's also about a critical part of moving the next phase forward also. And and so we just can't thank you enough for helping. And here we are back again. But, you know, one of the things I noticed, Senator, is we asked for 10. Uh, we're lucky if we get part of it. And, and ODOT says, well, we can't build it all for that. So we have more studies. So uh, that 10 million is a critical, critical thing for this region. So uh, what can we do to move that forward? What we'll do, like we did when we got that first one, and I, I remember the buying the right away and all of the things that went into what we had to had to do back then, and I, I think we all, you know, remember that uh, we worked with Senator Hatfield. We worked with all kinds of um, uh, leaders at every level: Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, progressives. You you name it. And, um, and we've gotten this um, far, and I think this next piece is very important. Now, um, Senator Merkley and I have been able to use this new change in the appropriations process so that if something comes from the community, not from Washington, D.C., but from the community, and there is a rigorous cost-effectiveness measure and a willingness to audit, then it's possible to uh, secure uh, additional help through the appropriations process. Now, the transportation projects have a limit of $5 million in 2023. Um, it's possible that we could ask over multiple years, but I know the growth in this area has been so incredibly urgent. And I think We've done good work so far, you know, on uh, the whole Dundee bypass. Sometimes we all felt that it'd be the longest running battle since the Trojan War to get any help. But let's just keep going. Let's continue to say no politics, not Democrats and Republicans, but infrastructure, quality of life. And you can't have good jobs with little league infrastructure. You can't have big league um, economics with little league infrastructure. So they will just follow up with you and go to work. Well, thank you. And I echo what you say about it. You know, Senator, this is people's highway all the way from the metropolitan area to the central Oregon coast. And it affects uh, the whole host of things and even the environment that you mentioned. And so again, thank you. And I'll, like, we look forward to working with yours and Senator Merkley's office and Congressman Bonamici, but, but, you know, we don't need to design a, a, a solution. We need to build a solution right there. Yeah. There you Thank are. You. And, and, you know, everybody in politics talks about family values. It'd be kind of nice to get people home, get home a little bit earlier so they could get some time with their family. I just went through there today and you're right, sir. All right. Good enough. Thanks for joining us today, Dave. Uh, next up, we have Mike from Amity. 
Good afternoon, Senator. Uh, Mike Thomas, uh, City Manager, City of Amity. And uh, first off, I want to thank your team, especially Fritz. They came out uh, earlier, late last week to walk through our community. Uh, we showed them some infrastructure projects of interest, so I appreciate all their support there. Uh, my question is related to uh, Dave's as well as for uh, funding for infrastructure. Your uh, congressional directed spending opportunities are immense, but for many of the smaller communities in Oregon and probably across the country, uh, many of us can't meet the matching requirements for some of these grants uh, based off the, uh, the CFRs and other administrative guidelines. And I was kind of curious what you think you can do to help many small communities, including Amity, get the funding, the grant funding, and the, uh, the support they need financially to complete some of these uh, massive infrastructure projects that we have sitting out here. Thank well, you, give, me, give me a couple of examples because I know you're absolutely right about getting the share done properly. I was in Port Orford yesterday. I went all the way down the coast and, you know, drove basically um, six hours to get back for a wonderful thing last night at the Moda Center where um, Bill Shonley retired. And we had a wonderful um, evening. And Port Orford got a very small amount of money in order to uh, help with their um, health facilities and the like. So tell me, uh, let me just give an example. One example is plenty, and we'll have Fritz um, follow it up, of what would be helpful to you on reducing the matching requirements for these community facilities grants. Well, sir, I've already provided Fritz a uh, one pager this morning for one of our projects. So that should be en route to you as it goes through staff. My example I could give you, sir, would be the uh, USDA community facilities CFR uh, states that uh, above a certain median income, the grant threshold drops about how much money can come in the grant. So for a city like Amity, we're a population of 1,800. Uh, we have a very small tax base, a very small population. For a $200,000 project, we will only get 15% uh, through the congressional directed spending. Uh, so that's $30,000. The other $170,000 the city would have to produce as part of the match and uh, as my mayor told Fritz, you know, if we had $170,000 available in our budget, we probably wouldn't need the congressional earmark. So it, it seems backwards to us where we would prefer to be able to get closer to 50 to 60, maybe even 70% of the money from the federal government as a match, and then the city provide the remaining, you know, 20, 30%. Uh, as I mentioned, a lot of this is in the one pager I presented to uh, Fritz, and I appreciate all the help he and everyone on your staff has been giving us. But a lot of small communities face this challenge when we come up for congressional earmarks. Sorry, that's the old term, congressional directed spending, or for uh, a lot of grants and projects through USDA and other government entities is that we just, we can't meet the match requirements. So that eliminates a lot of funding opportunities for us. And so my question and concern or complaint, however you wanted to phrase it, is what, what can be done legislatively to change those standards to allow more match funding to go to communities like ours. And that would be the, that's the example I have. So thank you. It's, it's a very, and it's a very good example, Dave, that a U.S. Department of Agriculture community facilities grants, I mean, we're an ag state, you know, we do a lot of stuff well, but what we do best is grow things. So it's a, it's a really good point. As you know, this was the first year of this whole effort. And I think it was very successful for our state, you know, overall. There were literally hundreds of important projects across the state that got, you know, small sums of money. Senator Merkley and I said, these rules are complicated. Call us and let us know what, uh, what you're dealing with in terms of navigating the rules. You've been, uh, based on everything we've heard, very easy uh, to work with. And we're going to keep trying to make these rules work as quickly as possible with each one of the new cycles for the availability of these um, funds. Now, 
as I think you talked about with our folks, a lot of them are written in the law. You can you know, change the law. Uh, this is going to require a lot of care because I think there are some people in the Congress who don't think that there ought to be this program at all. And, you know, depending on how you handle it, we could lose what got out to literally hundreds of small communities. So having said that, I've been hearing you and I know that Amity is always trying to take a reasonable approach on these things. We'll follow up and see what we can do to find a way to kind of make this this work for you. And, you know, the reason I have had 1,010 town hall meetings across the state is, you know, I said from the beginning, my first one was actually in Wheeler County, our smallest county in Oregon. And they asked, how come you're coming? They basically, you know, said, not only why are you coming, but, you know, nobody from here was ever for you. So why are you coming? And I said, because I'm a United States Senator to represent every nook and cranny in Oregon, not a United States Senator from the state of Portland. Wish I could have played for the Trailblazers, went to school on a basketball scholarship, but I'm a United States Senator to represent every single nook and cranny. So thank you for what you're doing, because I know challenges in a small community and you don't have all the people to help. I'll have Fritz on the phone with you again right away, and we'll see what we can do to be helpful. Yep, Fritz has been fantastic, Senator. He is you and he and his uh, your staff are been have been phenomenal for uh, Amity. So uh, we're already in communication. I, I thank you for his support and yours as well, sir. I just wanted to bring it up because I know there's Willamina and other, Dayton, other communities kind of have that same uh, situation. But well, thank you very I'm, much for your time, sir. I'm so glad that you would use this kind of opportunity where thousands of people can hear about this and see it because Amity's not alone. Oregon is mostly about small communities. You know, Portland and Eugene and Bend and everybody, they get all the attention, but we're mostly about small communities. And as I say, I'm not a United States Senator from the state of Portland. I'm a United States Senator to represent every nook and cranny and that's why today is town hall meeting number 1010. And as you've heard, not everybody uh, thinks my opinion is the right way to go. That's what democracy is all about. It's listening to everybody, trying to find common ground. I'm glad you could join Thank us. Thank you. Uh, so we do have time for a couple questions from folks uh, watching online. Uh, so if you are a constituent of Senator Wyden's, um, add a question in the comments, and we will try to get to a couple of them. So first, we have a question from uh, Rebecca in McMinnville, who asks, uh, quote, the poverty threshold is said to be determined by food costs in 1963 times three. This threshold is the same for all parts of the country. We all know that housing is, in fact, the cost that drives poverty in our times, and that real number varies throughout the country. The Census Bureau has determined that at least 10% of our citizens fall below this flawed determination of poverty. Uh, Rebecca, I'm going to paraphrase your question a little bit um, and skip to, I guess, you know, Senator, is, is there a better way of determining that poverty threshold and, and the uh, benefits that are connected to it? You know, I think it's really a good question. It hasn't touched on the issue that is really so important. Calculating the poverty line is an interesting idea, and I want to think about it. I think what this question really deals with is we have a serious shortage of affordable housing right now. And we see this all over the state. It's for folks of very modest means. It's for middle-income people. There is a program called LIHTC, Low-Income Housing Tax Credit. I propose, Nathan, MITEC, Middle-Income Housing Tax Credits, because you've got a couple where one is a firefighter and another is a nurse, and they can't get housing. And I think that given this big challenge, we need some big, bold solutions. And too often these policies are from yesteryear. And recently, I introduced legislation 
to make a real dent in housing affordability and homelessness. It's called the DASH Act, the Decent Affordable Safe Housing for All Act. Top analysts say that the DASH Act would build over 2 million additional affordable homes in 10 years. And so part of this is legislation and part of it is cutting red tape. I was on the phone recently, Nathan, with uh, home builders and they said a law that I wrote a number of years ago was absolutely crucial to getting them through the pandemic. And one said, we would have had very few closings without your law. It was the e-signatures law, which said after you signed your name once, you could click through documents. And the home builder said that without my e-signature law, there wouldn't have been as many closings. There wouldn't have been lawyers around and notaries around and people to handle you know, documents. And that being able to cut through the red tape was really crucial. So we're going to need uh, to look at formulas, which I think was what the caller was talking about. We also need some bold solutions, which is what the DASH Act is all about. And then we need to have some sensible approaches to cut red tape, save time, reduce bureaucracy. That's what my e-signature law is doing, according to leaders of the home builders. Great. Well, thanks for the question, Rebecca. Uh, we have a question from Ruthann uh, that I think connects to something uh, Bob uh, raised earlier. Uh, Ruthann says, changing to the CPIE to determine COLA for seniors, federal retirees, and military retirees is what needs to be done. We've been talking about this for years, but can you get it across the finish line? Well, it's obvious that all of these issues relating to the measures of inflation Bob's question, question now with respect to the um, federal workers are really crucial to families being able to pay for essentials, food and rent and fuel, health care, these kinds of priorities. And I'm trying to put all of them into a basket where we can basically say, unless we have accurate measures for inflation for these various kind, kinds, of, kinds of groups. Not only are we leaving people come, coming up short, but we're not uh, fulfilling our responsibility to have criteria that holds the government and everybody else accountable, but also is compassionate for people who have these real needs when you're dealing with so much inflation. So we're working on this. I know as, as Bob said, that uh, he's been up against Medicare and red tape and, and bureaucracy. So when he described it today, I said he's going to get a call the next day. So we'll follow it up. If we can have a number on the CP, uh, I think CPIE will do um, the same because we need these kinds of examples. And just as I've been successful on a number of Medicare efforts, for example, Nathan, um, one of the things that really helped during the pandemic is the government took the telemedicine provisions out of my Medicare chronic care law and used that as a basis for expanding health services to seniors at home with telemedicine. Just recently, a couple of weeks ago, we expanded that to include audio only. So on these issues of retirement and the elderly, this goes back to my days when I was director of the Great Panthers, and I want people to give me these examples, and I'll follow them up. And then people can hold me and everybody else accountable. Great. Well, we have time for one last question, and this one comes from Patty. Uh, Patty writes, how do we stop billionaire Louis DeJoy from using USPS dollars to buy gas-powered trucks? What an opportunity to go green, especially considering the infrastructure bill. There, Patty, there's a group of us in the United States Senate who are pushing to do just that. And get me a, an email, a phone, and we'll tell you how you can uh, participate in this. So glad you wrapped it up. It goes back to several of the questions. I think Glenna and Marion and others were talking about climate change. Transportation is one of the areas where we've got to do a better job 
in reducing carbon emissions in our caller. Uh, uh, those people who are advocating that position are absolutely right. Great. Well, thanks, uh, Patty, and thanks to everyone who submitted questions on Facebook. Sorry we didn't get to every single question, but appreciate uh, your comments and questions throughout the town hall. Uh, thanks to everyone who joined us live asking a question. Uh, it was another uh, energetic uh, conversation with so many topics covered. And Senator Wyden, uh, thank you for joining us. Any final words for everybody? Nathan, um, this county, Yamhill, always comes through because I think very few people even mention Democrats and Republicans. They talked about policies that were working. We heard some instances of that and policies that weren't. And that's my job. I call it the Oregon way. This is town hall meeting folks number 1010. That means over 1000 times I said, we're going to throw open the doors. With Nathan, we can throw open the digital doors. And we want people to be heard. And as we heard today, not everybody agrees on every point. What a surprise. We're a democracy. You know, in some parts of the world, you know, Putin would have it his way. Nobody could talk except people who agreed with him. So we're different. And I just want to tell everybody I so appreciate they're participating uh, today. I don't have all the answers, not by a long shot. But what I do know is that you can listen to people and common sense can prevail. That's what I did on that law to cut uh, the costs and the red tape associated with closing on home sales. That responds directly to the costs related to housing. And I described a law, by the way, which I wrote with a Republican, Spence Abraham of Michigan. So uh, I appreciate everybody on a cold afternoon. It was clear snow and sleet and rain wouldn't keep everybody today from participating in government. And that's the Oregon way. I appreciate everybody doing it. Nathan, thanks uh, to People's Town Hall. And uh, our conversation with folks in Yamhill will be going to the To Be Continued Department. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Senator. Thanks, Thank everyone. you, Senator. We'll see you next time. Thank you.